May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You ever been to a church service where you felt that while the preacher was talking? And this might be a whole different experience for you because I grew up in a church where I felt like when the preacher was talking, it was a good time to nap. But have you ever been at one of those churches where when the preacher's talking, your palms get sweaty? Your, your heart rate increases? You think, how does he know? How does he know? Did, she told him, didn't he? She Or my kids, he's been watching them. He knows exactly what we're up to. Have you ever had that experience? Some of you are starting to get ready, you know, for this. I mean, have you ever had that experience where you just felt like the preacher's been reading my mail or God must have revealed it to him and that's scary? Have you had that experience? There's a guy in the Bible who had that experience. His name was Herod. It's not Herod the Great. That was his dad. And Herod the Great was the one who, in Matthew chapter 2 or so, tried to kill the babies in Bethlehem, trying to kill Jesus, the Messiah. And Herod the Great was that kind of guy. He would kill to protect his throne. He killed uh, his own wives. I think he had four. And he left his uh, rulership. He left, he left the region that he was ruling. He's actually a, he was a subordinate ruler under the Romans. And he left this region, Israel, Palestine, Judea. He left this to his sons. And one of them was Herod Antipas. Herod kind of liked himself. So it's kind of like George Foreman where he had seven or five kids, and they were all named George. Herod was like that. He named all his sons Herod. And this is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, he, he went by the title Tetrarch. And tetrarch means ruler of a quarter. <laughs> he, he shared the region with three other guys. And Mark begins this story by talking about Herod, but he calls him king. And I think Mark's kind of kind of given a backhanded, uh, <laughs> you're not really a king, you know, to him. I, I think Herod is getting picked on by Mark, the gospel writer, as we pick up this story in a moment. But it's interesting because Herod actually wanted to be called king of the Jews. He wanted this title for himself. And he actually appealed to the Caesars for this title. To the emperor of Rome. And he was actually uh, disposed because of his request. King thought he was getting a little too big for his britches. He thought, no, you're a ruler of a quarter. You're not king. And Herod, Herod Antipas. We pick him up here in Mark chapter 8. And we've been walking through the book of Mark. And one of the things that's interesting in this story about Herod is he's had John the Baptist arrested. 
And the reason he had him arrested was because of his wife. His wife's name was Herodias. <laughs> she was actually kind of, she was actually his brother's wife, and she divorced him, and then brother married his brother's wife. And this was very offensive to the Jewish people. And it was actually sin, according to the book of Leviticus. And because of this, John the Baptist, well, he started speaking out against Herod. He started publicly calling out King Herod, (laughs) Tetrarch Herod, ruler of a quarter. And it made Herodias, his wife, really angry. And Herod arrested John. Now, it's interesting. Herodias wanted him dead. But Herod, he protected him because he understood he was a a righteous, holy man. Plus, we also learn in this text in a moment, he liked to listen to him. Let's just read it so we can get oriented to this story. We're in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. The words will be on the screen for you. King Herod, actually it's Tetriarch Herod, he's not really a king, but I think Mark's kind of giving him a dig. And this might have been written after his whole getting deposed because he thought he was king thing. Wouldn't that be funny? King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, now let me orient you really quickly. John's going to die. John's already dead when this is written. And it comes as a shock because we haven't heard that story yet. And it's almost like Mark goes, oops, I got to get you up to speed. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Twice in those three verses, we learn that John has been killed. What do you think Mark wants you to know after you read this story? That John the Baptist has been killed. That Herod killed him. He also wants you to wrestle with the question, and this is one of the primary questions throughout the book of John, that he wants to raise for his reader, for his audience. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? The identity of Jesus is at the core of Mark's gospel. And here we see three possibilities. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's Elijah. Or he's like one of the prophets of old. We might come back to that. We'll see how I feel. And still others claim, okay, blah, 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 blah. Let's go to 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Think of that family tree. (laughs) And for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. The reason I asked you, have you ever had that experience with a preacher? Now imagine this. Would you come to a church 
where you are one-on-one with the preacher each Sunday. It's just you and me, baby. Would you come to that church? Would you, like, want to hear that sermon? Because guess what my sermon prep for the week looks like? It looks like you. There's a lot of Sundays when I'm preparing messages, and, and in my mind's eye, I'm picturing, okay, there, there's these people over here, and there's, by the way, you all sit in the same place, so I can pretty much <laughs> picture it, right? You should change it up one day, and I'll be like, what? What's going on? And I picture in my mind's eye, who needs to hear this? Not because, you know, I'm mean and nasty and just, <laughs> I'm going to get them, but more because... A good pastor knows what's going on in people's lives. A good pastor knows what, what's happening in your life. Now, I'm an introvert. You already know that about me. I pretend to be an extrovert for about 30 minutes on Sundays. I'm an introvert, but, but one of the things that's interesting living in a small town, far more interesting than living in a city. In the city, I never knew what was going on in people's lives. There wasn't enough gossip. The reason was enough gossip because not everybody knew each other. In a small town, there's gossip. There's rumors. There's family. There's opportunity to know things about those you're speaking to. Plus, I've been here 13 years now. I know about our community. I know about what's going on. I know other struggles. I know our concerns. I know what's going on. I read the Ray Gazette. Occasionally I look at the Yuma Pioneer. I follow people on Facebook. I'm like a stalker. (laughs) For your benefit. And one of the things that's interesting is when I learn about things, when I see things going on, when I know what people are going through, when I've been alerted by a text, what's something to pray about? It shapes, it, it shapes my study during the week. It shapes what I, what I want to communicate. And could you imagine if it was just you and me each Sunday? You'd unfriend me on Facebook. <laughs> You'd probably ask parent, people, hey, is Steve out right now? Or is he at home? Oh, he's at home. Oh, he's out of town. Yeah. Okay, you would probably try to avoid me you probably wouldn't come on sundays unless i preached through the psalms made you feel good about yourself but look what herod does he's arrested john we know why because his wife said hey i'm sick of this guy mouthing off about our marriage to anybody who'll listen Arrest him. Put him to death. Well, he's a pretty cool guy, and he's really interesting to listen to. I'm a little puzzled by him, but I like to listen to him. That's my voice for Herod That's <laughs> as I read the Bible. And it says he liked to listen to him. Like he arrested him, and every day at like 9.30 in the morning, Herod's like, I don't know what to do. Hey, get that John the Baptist guy back out. He's fun to listen to. Okay. But he always gets in your face. I know, it's really interesting. No one else does that. Because I'm the king. Tetrarch. 
And every single day, perhaps, this is how I like to imagine it, every single day, Herod asks for John to be brought out. Every single day, John shows up. You know, maybe he's in chains. Yo, Herod, what's going on? Hey, just wondering if you had a message for me today. (laughs) Yeah, because you're still married to her, so here we go. And John lays in on him once again. This guy's a glutton for punishment or something. Why does he keep asking John to show up and talk to him? Why does he like this? (laughs) Some of you are asking yourself, why do I like coming to church on Sundays? The kids are all thinking, I can't say amen, but I want to. Right? You see, why does he do this? Why does he torture himself with John coming back out each and every day? That's how I like to imagine this going on. Verse 20 is a fascinating verse. When he heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. There's a couple reasons why somebody could be greatly puzzled, right? One could be, I don't get what you're saying, right? And that happens clearly with me sometimes because sometimes you all look at me like, land the plane. Where are we going? What's happening? (laughs) So confused. There's that kind of puzzling because the speaker, like what Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary said, he said, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pews. (laughs) And there's definitely sometimes it's misty in here and it's foggy out there, right? And that's one type of puzzle. My guess is though, since his wife, who's not asking to hear him each day, had him arrested because he was speaking out against their marriage, I think it's clear. I think he knows what John's going to say. I think he understands exactly what he's saying. Why is Herod puzzled? See, one way of being puzzled is, and actually the Greek word here, is in this family of words that we get the idea of doubt. We get this idea of, of struggle. I, I kind of like to have this picture of like, you ever gone to the rack and somebody leaves a treadmill? They're not supposed to do this, but they leave a treadmill on. Probably a kid was goofing around, you know, and they ran to get a basketball because they thought, hey, that'd be a lot of fun or something, you know. Um, or maybe somebody fell off and they went whisking across the room and <laughs> they haven't come to yet. The thing is moving. And you decide... I was a pretty good athlete when I was 20. I'm just going to jump on that bad boy. <laughs> right? That's just a bad idea. Yet, come on, how many of you done that, right? Or maybe you, you had to adjust your headband and your, your sound or whatever, so you step to the side and the thing's whisking down, and then you, know, you get back on and you stumble a little. That's what this word is saying. It's like hair, it's like that moment when you step on the moving treadmill and you get that brief momentary dizziness, vertigo. You're you're, you're puzzled. <laughs> What's happening? Your brain's like, what? Once again, your body is writing, your mind's writing checks, your body can't crash, you know? You step on that thing. 
And I think that's a picture of what is going on with Herod. There's this, there's this choice. Do I, do I jump on? Do I not jump on? Do I stay here? And he's puzzled as to what to do, where to go, because John is telling him, here's what's wrong. This is what you need to do. And Herod likes to hear it, but he's puzzled. It's like every day he's like, oh, man, I'm the king. How dare this guy talk to me? But should I do what he's telling me? I don't know. I'm puzzled. There's this indecision in Herod. It's interesting, though. There's another character in here who has no indecision. His wife. <laughs> Guys, you been there? <laughs> that, I, I, that, that wasn't in my notes. I just thought, <laughs> thought wow. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> okay. Yes, dear. Uh, this time, though, it leads to somebody's death. So it's sometimes good not to listen to your wife. Not, not always. Just sometimes, like when they want you to kill somebody. But anyways. Herod is puzzled. Herod is indecisive. Herod likes to hear it. Every day he, wa- he has John come out. He's in chains. Every day, John, hey, okay, this is what you need to do. Every day he listens. He likes it. And then he throws a party. Don't you like a good party? Herod liked a good party. And listen to how this comes about. Finally, the opportune time came. Opportune time for who? Whose perspective is the narrative telling the story from? Finally, the opportune time came. He's telling the story from his wife's point of view, from Herodias, her viewpoint. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, I bet you, no, I don't even have to bet you, I know. Herodias, her mom, sent her in to dance. And by the way, you know how to sell newspapers, magazines? Anything to do with royalty, sex, and religion. And we have all three here. We have all three here. We have royalty, we have king, tetrarch, Herod. We have his queen. We have the princess. And here, she, she dances... You'd have to know something about the culture. It's, it's like going to a high school dance nowadays, how she danced. When I was in high school, do you know how we danced? You know, we just kind of moved our arms and feet and looked at each other. No touching, you know. And then a song that nobody could dance to came on, and then you walked off and you just stood around. And another song came on, we all... Did the same thing, right? <laughs> Nowadays, you go to high school dance, what happens? It's like, people need restraining orders. <laughs> it's like, that, that's not, no. You're not supposed to touch each other. That's weird. What are you doing? Get away from them. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch MTV or something. She's dancing like that. How do I know that? Because read what it says. 
the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This isn't a cute little girl spinning around and doing cute little dances. This is a young woman of marrying age who Herod's probably trying to set up with one of these guys. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked to her and said to her mom, what shall I ask for? See, she's a pawn. She's being used by mom. Mom says the head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Do you see the decision, the decisiveness of Herodias? Do you see the scheme? What's going to happen with King Herod? It says the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and because his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Ever heard about peer pressure? I always thought kings wouldn't experience it. I always thought if I got big enough, I wouldn't have to live in fear of what others thought of me. But here's a king who does this because he's afraid of what others think of him. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. (laughs) This is in the Bible. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. My guess is nobody's life verse is coming from that last paragraph. My guess is nobody's ever memorized that. My guess is this is not the warm fuzzies that we sometimes like in the scriptures. But it's true. This happened. We know this happened because Josephus, a Jewish historian, also wrote about this same incident. He wrote about what happened here in his book, Antiquities, chapter 18. And we read the similar story. John died. And it's interesting because Mark's gospel, which Mark is the guy who's quick, he's fast, he likes to keep the pace up. All right, one, two, three, four, let's move it along, people. He keeps using the word immediately, 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 right then, so then, after, let's move, keep going. Mark spends the most time of any gospel writer on the death of John the Baptist. Matthew mentions it briefly. Luke leaves it out. And Mark spends this time on this story. This is one of the most detailed stories. I remember this story from when I was a kid in Sunday school. We had video footage. Just kidding. I'm not that old. Neither are cameras. (laughs) 
I remember this story. It was so vivid. It was like, oh, I can picture what's going on. I can see what's happening. And it's so vivid. Think about it. A head on a platter. You don't get much more visceral than that. My wife was going to read this passage to you all today. And she said, nah, I ain't going to read this passage. It offended her female sensitivities, I guess. All the junior high guys are like, whoa, this is in the Bible? It's awesome. Wow, what does head look like? What was that? I mean, all the junior high boys are like, this is why I, I preached from the book of Judges when I was a junior high middle school pastor. You share these kind of stories because it's gore and it's ugh, awesome. All the girls are like, oh, sick. And the boys are like, awesome. His head's on a platter. And who is John. John is Jesus' cousin. He's like the only one in the family who gets Jesus. He's like the only one who is out there proclaiming the kingdom with Jesus. Not only that, he's Jesus' forerunner. He's the one that comes and he makes straight the path of the Lord. He's the voice in the wilderness. He's the one that becomes before Jesus. And I think Mark is setting us up and saying... It doesn't go well for Jesus. It didn't go well for John. John is Jesus' forebearer in more than just one way. Mark actually has two passion narratives in this book. The passion of John the Baptist and the passion of Jesus. Why does he spend so much time on this? Part of it is so that you will wrestle with, who is this man? Who is this Jesus that someone would die for him before he dies for them? Who is this Jesus? Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist resurrected? Is he like one of the prophets of old? Or is he, as Jesus has already proclaimed himself, the unique, only son of God? The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. The I am in the flesh. Who do you say he is? I also think Mark has this in here because he wants us not to be like Herod. You see, now hear me well, hear me right. Did you hear me say that? Hear me well, hear me right. Herod doubted, and that's okay. Doubting is completely okay. It's not something that is always completely negative in the scriptures. In fact, Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. It's a command of the Bible to be merciful to those who doubt. (laughs) You ever experienced mercy in church for doubting? What? What do you mean? You ever experienced mercy at home, kids, for doubting? You ever experienced mercy in the political arena for doubting? Do you ever experience mercy for doubting? But this is a command of Scripture. Be merciful to those who doubt. 
Why? Why would the scriptures tell us to be merciful to those who doubt? Because faith and doubt are the same, are the opposite sides of the same coin. You see, when you doubt, you have a great opportunity. Herod, unlike his wife Herodias, who never doubted once, she never doubted. She always thought, I don't like what this guy says, kill him. Never doubted. And she found her opportune time and did it. Herod, perhaps God was using John to speak words of repentance into his life. And Herod was thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I get on the treadmill. It looks scary. I don't know if I try this. But this man is so fascinating to me because I'm the king and nobody else dares tells me the truth. No one else dares says what's on their mind. Everybody just comes and goes, yo, Herod, how's it going? Fine. What's the weather? Um, do you want it to be sunny today? Yes. Okay, it's sunny outside. It's wonderful. See, that's what kings want. They want to hear what they want to hear. And John comes in and he speaks the truth at the cost of his life. And Herod has never once experienced somebody like this. Herod's worldview says everybody is doing what they want to do to get ahead. And if they step on people, behead people, mess up people, fine. If you marry your brother's wife and you weren't supposed to, oh, well, that's how we do life. We do whatever we want. And John comes in and says, what you did was wrong. And Herod's like, you want a piece of this? You want a piece of this? I'm the king. John's like, don't care. Bring me out tomorrow. I'll have the same message for you in the morning. And there's this window of opportunity for Herod to repent because of the doubt. He's doubting his worldview. He's doubting he actually knows what he's doing. Some of you come every week. And every week, one of my goals is to make you doubt your worldview. Make you doubt what you think you know. It's awesome. I'm paid to do this. I'm paid to be subversive. Because one thing I know about this world It cleans up really nice, but it's going to hell. If you continue to live understanding and doing life the way this world says to do it, you will lose your soul. It will destroy you. It will destroy your family. It will destroy our community. It will destroy this world. It's been working that way Since Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. Sin has entered. And the world is a mess. And if you look at yourself. If you get a mirror out. Somebody asked me recently, what's up with your hair? (laughs) I don't know. I, I looked in the mirror. I tried. Guess I'll just cut it. You know, we all need mirrors. Sometimes the mirror needs to be somebody. And John was Herod's mirror. 
And John was saying, what's up with your hair? What's up with your marriage? What's up with your parenting? What's up with your ethics? What's up with how you're doing your taxes tomorrow? What's up with how you conduct your business? What's up with that? And all of us need that. All of us need to doubt the foundations that we've laid for our lives. And that's what Herod's doing. He kills John. And the opportunity is gone. The opportunity to doubt is gone. It opens up briefly. Why? Because at the beginning of this passage, it says, maybe John the Baptist, who I beheaded, is back from the dead. (gasps) Maybe he'll come and I could arrest him and he could come and talk with me every single day. And I could kind of enter back into, do I get on the treadmill? Do I not? What do I do? I could enter back into the indecision. I could enter back into trying to figure it out. And here's the sad thing. Some of you know this window of doubt, this window of doubting your foundation, this window of wrestling with who I am and what I believe. It's currently open, but there is a time coming when it will close. Do not assume it will always be open. Herod shows back up in the book of Mark. Jesus has been handed over to Pilate. And Pilate, he doesn't want to kill him. And he finds out, hey, this guy's from Herod's jurisdiction. He sends him off to Herod. And Herod is not interested in hearing Jesus. In fact, Herod mocks him. Herod's response is to mock Jesus. Herod's response is to ridicule Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even open his mouth before Herod. Did you know that there could come a point in time where Jesus won't even open his mouth to you? If you persist in your, in your doubts, if you persist in your unbelief, if you persist in your indecision... The window could close. You see, doubt gets a bad rap in church. Dad, doubt gets a bad rap. And let me just tell you that doubt is a powerful thing to make our faith great. Some will teach, oh, you should never doubt. You should never doubt. You should always have faith. Never doubt. Always have faith. Never doubt. Always have faith. Question. Here, here's the... Here's the experiment that I like to think through on this. You ever have one of those dreams where you're falling? I used to. And then I started taking control of my dreams. I actually did. It was really cool. I haven't fallen in a long time now. In a dream. (laughs) Real life's a whole different animal, right? So you're about to fall. You're on the edge. You're standing there. You slip, you're tumbling, and you see a branch. Now, the branch is strong enough to hold you. The branch can hold you, but you doubt it can hold you. You've got a very scientific mind. You're very methodical, mathematical. You're working the percentages in your mind. You're thinking, ah, there's like a 10% chance that can grab me and hold me. There's like a 10% chance that could hold me. What do you do? (laughs) 
I grab the branch. Right? Now, if you grab the branch and it's strong enough to hold you, but you only believe that it was 10% enough, is only 10% of you saved? Or 100% of you saved? If the branch is strong enough, does it matter what you think about the branch and its ability to save you? If you grab it, it's the branch. It's strong enough to save you. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the quality of the object of your faith. Does that make sense? It's not the quality of your faith. Mark chapter 9, we're going to get there eventually. I don't know when. Mark chapter 9, there's a man who comes to Jesus and he says, heal my son. And Jesus says, hey, I can heal him if you have faith. And the dad says, I have faith, that's why I'm here, but I also don't know if I have enough faith. (laughs) And Jesus is like, that's a terrible answer. Why don't you go back and come back tomorrow when you've got it figured out, punk? Oh, wait, that's not what Jesus says. (sighs) Gosh, I got to work on my Greek and Hebrew. Sometimes I get off. Jesus says to the boy, be healed. Even dad is sitting there going, ah, I, I believe, I don't believe, I believe, I don't believe, I don't know, just, I, I'm here. I'm here. I'm grabbing for the branch. I think there's a 10% chance. And Jesus doesn't say, go back to the woodshed and work out all your doubts. And then come back and see me. He says to the boy, be healed. Why? Because it's not the quantity of his faith. It's not the quality of his faith. It's the object of his faith that matters. It's the object of your and I's faith that matters. One last thing. Look at John the Baptist. What a stud. What a man. I mean, he goes into a king and tells him, what you're doing is wrong. It's sin. Straighten up, punk. And he does this daily. The nerve. Don't you know I'm king? Don't you know I could kill you? And that's what puzzles him in part. He knows I can kill him, right? Why does he keep saying this? Does anybody you, you fear? Anything you fear? Anything in this life that is at the core of what you're building, your life, your name, your reputation, anything you're building life on besides Christ? If there is, you're a pawn. And somebody like Herodias can come along and play you. Why? Because she knew he wasn't about to lose face. He wasn't about to lose face in front of his buddies at his birthday party. And she played him. If you fear anything but Christ, you could be played. You're a pawn. If you fear anything but God, if you are basing your life on anything but Christ, then you will cower 
then you will crumble. Then you will find yourself waffling back and forth. I don't know. I don't think I should say this. This might hurt their feelings. Oh my gosh. There's too much at stake. I don't want to lose face. And John gets it. And what does he get? What does he understand that you and I don't get so much of the time? He understands that Jesus Christ will ultimately be 